please uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17. And we'll begin this morning in verse 16. But as you're turning, let me pray for our time in the Word together. Lord, we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us and you have clearly communicated to us through your scriptures. So I do pray this morning as we read that our hearts would be prepared to apply, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, but also convict us. So help us to submit ourselves under your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts 17, verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting us. For you bringing some strange things to our ears, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so this is our second week uh, in the book of Acts. Last week we were in Acts 13, this week Acts 17. But what I want to do is uh, step back and give a big picture of the book of Acts uh, to land us, uh, to help us to land in Acts 17. So the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote 
the book of Acts. So Acts is essentially a continuation of Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, he ends with the death, resurrection, and ascension to Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And then the book of Acts picks that story back up. And it gives us the continuation of the ministry through the apostles. We could say through the Acts of the apostles as the gospel is spreading forth. Okay. So Acts 1.8 is a very important verse for us. It provides the framework for the book. It's in Acts 1.8 that Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, pause. Recall, prior to Jesus' death and his resurrection, he told his disciples, he promised them that after his death and resurrection, he would send them a helper that would empower them for the continued work of the ministry. And we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit comes upon the church at Pentecost in fire and empowers the disciples to continue to move the gospel forward. Okay, so Acts 1.8 continues on. Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And we see that reality in Acts chapters 1 through 7 as the gospel is being planted in Jerusalem. Jesus goes on, and in all Judea and Samaria, and we see that reality of, uh, of the gospel being planted in Judea and Samaria in Acts chapters 8 through 12. In fact, verse 8-1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So God allows persecution to hit the church in order that the gospel continues to spread further. And then Jesus in Acts 1.8 says, and to the ends of the earth. And we see that reality beginning in Acts 13 and on as the gospel is taking beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So last Sunday, we were in Acts 13 and focusing on Paul preaching to a largely Jewish audience. But as we recall, many, in that, many of the Jews rejected Jesus. Or, uh, yeah, rejected Jesus. So Paul then turns to the Gentiles. And this is in fulfillment of Acts, or Isaiah 49.6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we're in Acts 17, where that gospel is continuing to go to the Gentiles. So, in Acts 17, verse 16, we find Paul in Athens. Why is he in Athens? Well, it says he is waiting for them, and the them is Silas and Timothy. The reason he's in Athens waiting for them is as Paul has been proclaiming the gospel in various areas, persecution is breaking out as the gospel is spreading. And so Paul's companions, realizing uh, the risk of his life, uh, bring him to Athens. So, while he is in Athens, he begins to look around. Verse 16 says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, as he's waiting in Athens, begins walking around, and what does he see? 
he sees that the city is full of idols. Our, our Bible reads um, full of idols, and the concept here in the Greek is more like the city was under idols, smothered by idols. There's a famous saying in Athens at that time that it is easier to find a God in Athens than a man. So Paul sees all these idols around, but what does he feel? Luke tells us that he is provoked. Your translations may say greatly distressed. Paul is jealous for the name of God. Paul sees all these idols, these God substitutes, as rivals to the one true God, and he is stirred up. Okay, how about us? We, we don't live in Athens, probably don't encounter tons of statues of false gods, although Lawrence does have their fair share of them. But when we look around, what do we see? What do we feel? Are our eyes open? Do we see people whom we know and love chasing after false gods? So that if Jesus were to return today, they would be judged and eternally separated from God. And does this provoke us? Does this distress us? Does this unsettle us? Does this stir us to do something? And maybe what it stirs within us at times as we think about sharing the gospel is fear. Fear. I don't know what to say. Fear. I don't know what they'll think of me. Fear can so easily swell up within us. By the way, I'm preaching to myself right now, and I'm just bringing you all along. When was the last time that you moved out towards somebody with the hope of sharing the gospel, whether that takes moments or months? And maybe under the fear lies something deeper. Are we provoked? Are we moved by the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to rescue Jesus came to rescue sinners and to offer sinners life, true life, eternal life. And maybe what keeps us being moved and provoked by the gospel at times are our own idols. Idols of comfort. Idols of pleasure. Idols of self-absorption. Idols that keep us numb to the love of God, numb to the love of of neighbor, keeps us focused on our own lives and absorbed. So this morning is really just a reminder that the gospel is glorious, it is powerful, and it needs to be shared. So in Acts 17, Paul sees this city smothered with idols. He's provoked, and what does he do? He begins to build bridges for the gospel to be shared, building bridges, figuratively speaking. Last week, I asked the question, when it comes to sharing the gospel, how do we build bridges to others? And then I gave you what I think is a profound answer, one plank at a time, right? And, and so I offered four planks. I'm going to summarize these really quickly. Um, first, there's the plank of 
perspective in prayer. What's our perspective on those that are outside of the church, right? Um, Is our perspective compassion? Recognizing that people outside the door of the church, they're not the enemy. It is Satan who is the enemy. Scriptures tell us Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ. We know that Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came to release the captives in Luke chapter 4. God calls us to get caught up with that mission as well. What's our perspective? In the plank of perspective, plank of prayer, do we have people that we are intentionally praying for? The plank of understanding. Last week I talked about growing in our understanding of the gospel growing in our understanding of the scriptures. At times, this includes growing in our understanding of what others believe, which means asking good questions so that we can do what I refer to as gospel jazz. Like a good jazz musician, improvising with the gospel, catering it to the conversation of the person in front of us, taking into account where they are in their spiritual journey, their questions, their concerns. We see Paul do this continually through Acts. The plank of clarification, asking ourselves the question, what assumption about God, about the scriptures, about the gospel, does this person believe and what can I help to clarify? And then the plank of challenge, loving people enough to explain that there are two realities. There is an eternal darkness and there is an eternal light and urging people to, to, to put, uh, put their trust in Christ. Again, We saw these four planks last week in Acts chapter 13. We see them again throughout Acts chapter 17. So in verse 17, seeing the idols being provoked, Paul goes to work building bridges. Luke tells us he goes to reason with those who are in the synagogue and with those who are in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace, think in terms of vendors, farmers, magicians, performers, philosophers, all gathered together, kind of the central meeting place of the city, not really unlike Mass Street for us. Luke tells us that in the marketplace, Paul engaged with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, I'm going to read a quick summary of those, and it is not to give us a history of philosophy lesson, but rather it is to make the point that as you hear these philosophies They live on in every generation. Epicureans considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in, have no influence on human affairs. Think deism. The world was due to chance. There's no survival at death and no judgment, so human beings should pursue pleasure. YOLO, you only live once, right? Especially the enjoyment of life detached from pain, passion, and fear. Okay, Stoics. Acknowledge the supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, meaning at times manifestation, God just is the universe, or there's multiple gods. The world was determined by fate, and human beings must pursue their duty, resign themselves to live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful this might be, and develop their own self-sufficiency. At the end of the day, these, these philosophies really are about the self, putting man in the center. But what Luke tells us is Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
Again, this is the heart of Paul's message in Acts 13. It's in Acts 17. The response to Paul, they called him a babbler. Okay. Back in the day, you don't want to be called a babbler. So a babbler, the origin of this would be like a bird picking at, picking at like seeds in a gutter. And the idea was picking at learning, but not really having a great knowledge. So, um, but they're intrigued with what he's saying and wants to hear more. So they took Paul, they brought him in verses 19 through 21. They brought Paul to the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Latin. Here, here, quick drop, backdrop on, uh, on Athens. Uh, had a, Athens had a rich history of literature, art, education, philosophy. It was the home to such philosophers as uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They take their philosophy very seriously. And so this, uh, where, they, where they brought Paul, the Areopagus, you could say was essentially uh, the court of the philosophers. They're entrusted with kind of guarding the morality, the religion, the philosophy of Athens and evaluating any new ideas that are brought to the city. Luke comments in verse 21 that the Athenians just pretty much spent all their time doing nothing but hearing and telling of new stuff. But they ask Paul, may we, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Okay, so Paul has effectively built a bridge to where they're asking him, all right, tell us what you believe. And here we go. Verses 22 through 29. I want us to look at how, at how Paul continues to build a bridge for the gospel and taking note of what Paul does. He talks about how glorious God is. And in the process, what he's doing is he's challenging the philosophies and the false gods of the day. So, verses 22 and 23. Read along with me, please. 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. Okay, notice, Paul begins with affirmation. Hey, I see you're very religious. Okay, Paul is affirming this in order to uh, produce some common ground between them. And then Paul goes on to say, but as I've been walking around, I notice this altar to an unknown God. Paul says, let me make known to you who this God actually is. And then verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, or made, uh, made by ban, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul saying, no, there is one God, the God. He is creator of everything. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And this would challenge their understanding of the day of multiple gods. This would challenge their concept of these various gods reigning over geographical regions, like the God of the mountains, the God of the seas. No, Paul is saying, no, there's one God. He reigns over heaven and earth. He reigns over everything. 
Paul goes on to say that this God doesn't live in temples made by man. You can imagine Paul there probably gesturing to the temples around him, saying, these temples cannot confine God. He goes on, nor is he served by, human, by humans as though he needs something. And again, this is, this is Paul challenging the ideas of the day. You cannot confine God. You cannot domesticate God like he's some animal that we need to give food and shelter to. You cannot control God. But in this, we can hear the lie from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, the lie of the serpent, but you can be like God. And from this sinful desire to create God in our own image and to control him, but Paul's saying, oh no. No, this God is the creator. He is the one who rules over us. Verses 26 and 27. And he made man from every, and he made uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. So here Paul is proclaiming God as the sovereign God. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler of all things. This includes the creation and the history of all mankind, uh, mankind across the face of the earth, including dwelling places and time periods. So this challenges their idea that the world is just by chance and that life is random. And then Paul goes on to explain that this God is personal. He draws near. He is not far from each of us and can be found. And again, this challenges their concept of gods that are so transcendent that they can't be known. Paul's saying, no, this God can be known. And, uh, and what Paul is doing is preparing them for this truth, that God has made himself known and he can be found. Verses 28 and 29. For, and now Paul quotes two of their prophets or two of their poets. In him we live, live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay. So he now quotes two poets that the Athenians would have been familiar with, Epimenides and Eridus. And again, Paul is using them as a bridge to the gospel. Now, think about this in contrast to last week. Paul spoke to a Jewish audience last week who would have an understanding of one God, have an understanding of the Old Testament. And so what Paul did was he took that and he connected the dots to make it personal, that this all pointed to the person and work of Jesus. But Paul doesn't have that luxury here with this audience. So Paul is doing, again, gospel jazz. Paul's saying, what can I affirm in their culture? What can I take? And how do I connect the dots to Jesus. So he quotes two poets. Okay, the first one, in him we live and move and have our being. The second one, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul's saying, well, yes and no. 
Okay, so know that second uh, poem is actually attributed to Zeus. So no, that's not accurate. But it actually, but here's the yes, it is accurate of God. We are created in God's image. It is God who gives all mankind life and breath. Essentially, what Paul is doing is saying, you should listen to your own poets and understand that maybe God is not like an idol that we create, but rather he is the sustainer, he is the creator, he is the ruler of the world, and this God draws near. And now, speaking of drawing near, Paul ends his message with a call to repentance, verses 30 and 31. It says, the time... The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here's the point Paul is making here as he brings this message home. God is not just the creator of the universe, but he's also the judge. And it is not that God will overlook this ignorance forever. Meaning, if you hear the good news, but fail to repent, that brings judgment upon yourself. God commands everywhere, or God commands everyone everywhere to repent because God has a day fixed on his calendar, so to speak, when he will judge the world in righteousness, Paul says, by the man he has appointed, namely Jesus. Then Paul adds, God has given the assurance of this fact that Jesus is the Son of God by raising him from the dead, essentially is what Paul is saying. So what Paul ends with, what he focuses on, is the resurrection. Has to be our focus. And why? because it's the focal point of all history, because it is the only hope of eternal life. And it is the resurrected Christ who now sits at the right hand of the Father and is coming again in judgment. So the sermon ends here. And if you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, Paul left a lot of things out. Didn't even mention, or you know, the cross. Did he mention forgiveness? This is what we have to understand. Luke most likely is just giving us a summary of Paul's sermon. As I read this sermon out loud, it takes one minute and twenty-two seconds. My guess is Paul spoke longer for one minute, longer than one minute and twenty-two seconds. But this is a summary. But he does hit at the heart of it: the resurrection of Jesus. And then look at the responses in 32 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul went out from their, uh, their midst. Some men joined him and believed. Okay, so we have um, some mocked. Others saying, well, we, uh, we want to hear more. But others joined and believed. So what do we learn here? What do we take away from this? So, again, recognizing what Paul does here. 
is he talks about the infinite personal God. He begins with the God who is infinite, the creator. Creator of all things, Lord over all things. But then where he takes his audience is that God is infinite, but he's personal. That God draws near through the person of Christ. And that this actually calls forth a response because judgment is coming. This, this concept of God is the infinite personal God. Reminds me of, of a quote that I love. I've shared it in here at least one time. But um, it's this. Imagine that the distance from the earth to the sun, 92 million miles, was the thickness of one sheet of paper. Then the distance from the earth to the nearest star alone would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The diameter of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is only a single speck, one of an infinite number of galaxies just in the part of the universe that we can see. Okay. That's an infinite God. Then the author goes on. If, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ holds all that together with just the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1, 3, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant or your consultant? Of course not. If you were to relate to such a person, he will either be the absolute Lord of your life or nothing at all. And that is where Paul is bringing his audience. God is the absolute Lord of all. They needed to hear that, but we need to hear it as well. And this passage prompts a few questions in our own lives. What do we see when we look at the world around us? Are our eyes open? So years ago, I took a group of college students and I had them just walk Mass Street, walk the loop of Mass Street, and I just said, I want you to open your eyes and, and come back and report, what do you see? And with their eyes open, they came back. And it was long enough, long, long enough ago, I don't remember all the details, but I'll tell you what was struck, what struck us all, is they were provoked because the world needs Jesus. It's clear to see all over Mass Street. Are our eyes open to the world around us? Like Paul, are we provoked? Are we distressed by a world full of idols in the pursuit of substitute gods? Are we provoked and distressed by those whom we know and love who are chasing after things that are fleeting and do not know the Lord? And what idols do we see in our own lives that compete for our allegiance to God? and can keep us from moving towards others with the gospel. Again, it's the comforts of life. It's the pleasures of life. It's self-absorption. It's so many things that can numb us to the glory of God and to the need that our neighbors have for true hope, true life in Christ. What hinders us from being so moved by the gospel that we seek to build bridges with others to share it. Jesus called us, he told us, we are the light of the world. Now, with that, a quick story. So years ago, 
This was actually about 13 years ago. The house that we lived in, my kids' toilet was clogged. These are the toilet that all four of my kids used at the time. So I thought, okay, once again, too much toilet paper. So I got out the old plunger. By the way, I shared this about 13 years ago, but um, if you're like me, you, you may not remember. So here's the details. I got out the plunger. Um, that didn't work. So then I moved on to the snake. That didn't work. So then I rolled up my sleeves, uh, unbolted the toilet from the floor, and took the toilet off the floor. Looked down the pipe, nothing. It was clear. So now I'm really perplexed. So then I take the toilet and I lift it up, and there it is in the bowels of the toilet, pun intended, um, is a five-inch-long flashlight. Like, how did that get there? And all fingers pointed to our youngest. Uh, I wasn't going to give his name. I won't give his name. He's our youngest. All fingers pointed towards Ty. Um, because at that point in his life, he had this habit of just walking around the house, picking up objects, taking them to the toilet, throwing them in, and hitting the flush. So yes, he, uh, he flushed his brother's flashlight. So the question that comes out of this, all that to say, what flushes our flashlight? It's goofy, but it's actually an honest question. Who flushes our flashlight? What flashes our, oh, flushes our flashlight? Are our flashlights called to be the light of the world? Are our flashlights, are they dimmed by just uh, our own idols, things that numb us? Is it fear? Fear of what do I would say to somebody else? What will they think of me? How will they react? We can respond. I'm not like Paul. Paul was great at this. You know what Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 2.2? He came in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So yeah, I take comfort in that. Paul's like us, right? And so what I would love for in my own heart, our hearts, let's replace fear. We're so prone to give ourselves to fear. Let's, let's replace that with trust. Can we trust God that God actually builds bridges? Can we trust God that he is powerful enough to transform people's lives and their hearts can we trust that when Jesus said he will be with us to the end of the age, he actually meant it and won't leave us hanging? And then, can we begin to build bridges? Right Again, the, build, the bridges of perspective. Are our eyes open? Are we provoked? And that bridge of prayer, do we have people we can begin intentionally praying for? I tell you, as a product of this, I have two people and a group on my list. Right? Who do I need to be intentional with that I believe God has put right under my nose? And this, one last image for us. I think, it would be, I think it would be really cool if we had an aerial view of Lawrence and we could look down and see, um, let's just say, when we looked down, we would see uh, Christians as lights, right? And what we would see on a Sunday morning is a high concentration of a bright light at 3312 Calvin Drive, right? That's our address right here. Big concentration Sunday morning. But then on Monday through Saturday, it would be fascinating to see where all these lights scatter out to. We're all over the place. And Lawrence and beyond, 
and we take the gospel with us. We take it with us. We pray for people. We ask questions. We live our lives taking the gospel with us and trusting that God can be at work in us and through us. Knowing this, again, I mentioned before, I'll just end with this. This is just a reminder. The gospel is powerful. It is glorious, and it needs to be shared. And to that end, let's pray. Lord, our prayer this morning, that you would open our eyes a little wider to the glory of the gospel. Open our eyes a little wider to our own idols, the things that numb us to the glory of God, that numb us to what our neighbors all around us need. So I do pray that you would give us opportunity. Would you open doors for the witness of our church to go out, both as church as a whole, but also individually in our own lives as we scatter throughout So help us. I pray that the gospel would speed ahead in Lawrence, that you'd use our church, you'd use other churches, Lord, use Christians, that the gospel would go out powerfully. Pray also, Lord, uh, for the Tigreen family as Joel passed away peacefully. Lord, help us in our grief. Help his family. Please comfort them. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the excitement for Joel's witness, especially as he was excited to see his king. Lord, we give you thanks. Pray for Roger and Annette, his parents. Pray for Emily, their children uh, of, the, uh, of Joel. Um, comfort them, strengthen them, provide all they need. Pray, pray also for Grace and Stephen May and uh, that we can rejoice with the news of their pregnancy, but also the concern of the ovarian cyst that was found. We give you thanks that it does not seem to be cancerous, but does place them in a high risk for this pregnancy. And as they're scheduled for surgery, April 21st, Lord, pray that you would um, be with them, that you would heal her, that you would protect that baby's health. Thanks that you are a God that we can count on. And I think about the other needs, various people within our church with cancer and other needs, some that we know about, many others that we don't know about. Um, But Lord, you know, and we give you thanks that you are a God, as we saw in this passage, that is Lord over everything. So we trust you and help us with depth to trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.